0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus.
1: And I'm April Glazer.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 15th.
1: On today's show, we'll talk about news that PG&E, California's primary power and gas provider, plans to file for bankruptcy due to the billions in liability it faces stemming from the deadly wildfires last year. Allegations have been made that PG&E's power lines and equipment aided in the fires, and the company did not adequately address those hazards beforehand. Last year, we saw the deadliest fire in California history, the Camp Fire. As the home to some of the world's most powerful tech companies, California's economy last year surpassed the U.K., but it's clear that its wealth has not trickled down to help Californians suffering the effects of prolonged drought and longer fire seasons that are hitting more populated areas.
0: We'll also talk about a letter sent this week to Microsoft, Amazon, and Google from more than 85 civil rights and racial justice groups, including the ACLU. The letter demands that these companies stop building face recognition technology that could be used by the government for surveillance. We've seen employees of these companies voice their concern over the past year, but what might come of this sort of outside pressure? And then we'll welcome back Taylor Lorenz, journalist at The Atlantic. We'll talk to her about what social media might look like in 2019. So forget Facebook for a second, forget Twitter and Snapchat, even YouTube, which is what we talked to Lorenz about last time we had her on the show a year ago. We're going to talk to you about what the kids are up to now, like making dance videos on TikTok, making Instagram eggs go viral for some reason, and making friends in the comments sections of social apps, which sounds terrible to me. And what might some of these trends tell us about where social media is headed?
1: We're also going to take a look back briefly at one of the major themes that emerged this year from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which just ended. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, second show of 2019. Hey, Will, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. Thanks, April. It's snowy here in Delaware. My little kid got to go sledding for the first time, so that was a highlight. How about you?
1: Oh, I love sledding. I hate snow, though, and I don't even know what skiing is. Um, (laughs) I'm fine. Uh, I'm in California. It's raining, which is something I'm also not used to because of the drought here. But um, but, But a wonderful thing. Grateful for precipitation, and I know my plants are happy.
0: All right. Now we want to talk about a news story that, April, you've been following, which is the story of PG&E, the giant utility company in California, now facing bankruptcy over all the lawsuits stemming from its role in the devastating California wildfires earlier this year and previously. Can you explain first just in what way is PG&E maybe partly responsible for these wildfires?
1: Sure. I mean, so uh, PG&E, to be clear, is uh you know, an investor owned utility. It's a private company um, and it serves about 16 million people across Northern California. It serves most Californians. Um, and it did announce Monday that it plans to file for bankruptcy. Um, and the move to declare insolvency comes just uh, two months after the campfire where I went and reported from, you know, ignited and, and that killed at least 86 people in, in Butte County. Um It turned the entire town of Paradise to ash and all the neighboring hamlets, many of them were also burned down. Um, again, 86 people died, a major catastrophe, deadliest fire in California history. That could cost PG&E alone somewhere around $15 billion. And the damage from the campfire comes on top of $15 billion or an estimated $15 billion that the company already owes from uh, being found responsible for 18 of the 21 major fires that sparked across the state in 2017. And so we're looking at, you know, something around $30 billion that this company uh, will be liable. For And it's, you know, it looks like it's owing more than it's making and more than its insurance will cover, which makes it a possible candidate for bankruptcy. Um, but, you know, when you file for bankruptcy and you go to a federal bankruptcy judge... Uh, the interest of the creditors are, are put, you know, before the interest of the ratepayers, before the interest of fire victims. And it is a major controversy as for, you know, who is going to pay for these fires. And these fires are a result of PG&E equipment and also of just more flammable land across California as we suffer through, you know, more extreme droughts every year.
0: Right. So, so PG&E's liability here, to be clear, stems from the fact that they didn't properly maintain their power lines or they didn't clear brush around the lines or that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, they they didn't properly maintain the, you know, uh, trimming trees and cutting down dead trees around the lines. Uh, they didn't invest in putting lines potentially underground instead of stringing them in like densely wooded areas. You know, there's also a uh, Pretty recent history of PG&E falsifying, you know, documents when it comes to like checking gas um, lines and 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 things like that. And that doesn't have to do with its its electricity lines, but I mean, just kind of a, a shady history with the company, not um, really maintaining its infrastructure well. And the 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 thing is, is that you know this is happening; these like extreme climate catastrophes. Um, Uh, It's happening in in a state that's also very, very, very wealthy as a result of the technology industry. I mean, from the campfire alone, we saw 50,000 people or so displaced. We're just, you know, every year more and more people are dying, more homes are destroyed and people are being put into You know, these very precarious situations where they don't know where they're going to live or what they're going to do or if they're going to have jobs, they lose everything. And the extreme divides between the haves and like people who have money and those who do not have money are starting to feel, I mean, they always felt really stark because of our homeless problem. But now homelessness is being compounded by the fact that people's homes are burning down. And so it's just interesting that this is happening in a state that also has so much
2: wealth.
0: Yeah, so not necessarily a, a tech story per se, but it's a story of of incentives that the investor-owned utility faces, and it, it just plays into the broader narrative we have of of California these days being this sort of tech utopia turned dystopia, where we're making we're solving a bunch of problems that we don't have, and then not solving a bunch of problems that we do have.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, and you know, also of course PG and E does appear to be liable for a lot of this um but there's also all kinds of ways that you know philanthropy can creatively kind of help people to have more sustainable homes or help with relocation or or help uh you know educate or 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 do more in terms of intentional burning and really having you know uh more kind of fire awareness and and work to to lessen the effects of fires um and uh and yeah, that's, that's, that's a role that people with a lot of money can, can step, step into as well. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a tech story, but there's common ground here. And that common ground is the state of California. So I um, wanted to talk about that because it's a major business story, no doubt. And it's something that's going to keep happening every year and not just in California, but around the world. Yeah, or oh, around I, the United States. I mean, like too. I mean, just like talking in the U.S., we should expect to see more and more and more questions of liability when it comes to these types of climate catastrophes.
0: Yeah, infrastructure, public infrastructure is one of those sort of blind or spots of, of the current, yeah, <laughs> right, of the current state of of techno capitalism in the U.S. You know, you've got folks like Tom Steyer and Elon Musk in Silicon Valley who are championing global climate change and, and, and uh, environmental causes. But I don't know if, you know, you have that same level of interest in, in the country's decaying infrastructure. And now let's move to another topic that's getting a lot of discussion in Silicon Valley these days, which is face recognition. And in particular, this week, the ACLU, along with more than 85 other human rights groups, sent out a letter to three of the big tech companies asking them not to build face recognition technology that the government could use for surveillance. The ACLU's Nicole Ozer writes, History has clearly taught us that the government will exploit technologies like face surveillance to target communities of color, religious minorities, and immigrants. We are at a crossroads with face surveillance. The choices made by these companies now will determine whether the next generation will have to fear being tracked by the government for attending a protest, going to their place of worship, or simply living their lives. April- What do you think about this advocacy by the ACLU where they're they're directly lobbying the tech companies rather than, uh, at least at the moment, rather than going to Washington, D.C. and trying to get laws passed?
1: I mean, there's a lot going on here. One thing that I find completely fascinating is it's somewhat of an admittance that perhaps asking the government to reform its surveillance practices isn't necessarily hasn't been that effective. And and probably that's because it happens at so many rungs, right, from the Department of Homeland Security programs to, you know, street-level surveillance with, uh, you know, local police uh, to federal FBI programs. Uh, you know, the, F- the FBI has a massive uh, facial recognition database in and of itself. And also a recognition that, uh, that the government does most of its work through, a lot of its work, rather, uh, through this type of surveillance that... Um, that may some may consider unconstitutional or at least really a, a kind of a brooch of, of basic uh, human rights and 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 kind of justice uh, and just surveillance on unjust surveillance rather um, depends on private vendors um, and they use companies to do this uh, but you know I do think it's interesting that they're not um, asking the government to regulate these companies they're asking these companies to stop Doing it, You know, there, it, it's, it's fascinating because it's a recognition of both, you know, government not being willing to change its surveillance practices um, and also uh, asking companies to regulate themselves. Um, we'll see how it goes, but it's something I'm going to keep watching closely as I look for more effective ways to kind of uh, rein in our, you know, <laughs> sprawling surveillance state that we're in now. What are your thoughts on it, yeah, on the, the directionality of this?
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me in a couple ways. One is that the tech industry actually is in some ways thinking ahead about this. Certainly, more so than when uh, Google and Yahoo and Facebook were building the, uh, the the web that we know today, that's based on targeted advertising. There was not a lot of thought given at that time in those early stages to are we building a you know a massive surveillance machine that could end up having terrible consequences for society. I think we are seeing a little bit more of that introspection, which is good. From tech companies, you've got uh, Google CEO Sundar Pichai going out and saying, "We're not going to build." A, a face recognition product right now until we can address some of these concerns. Microsoft is, I guess, working on face recognition products, but at the same time, they're putting out open letters to Congress and the government saying, look, you guys have to do something because we don't want to be in a race to the bottom where where privacy is the victim. Now, you, the cynical view there is that Microsoft is losing the race anyway, so it's in their interest yeah. to ask the government to step in. Um, but the ACLU yeah, the also sim- singles out <laughs> Amazon, which Amazon is the one of the three that really we've just seen charging ahead despite outcry from their own employees, and Amazon Uh, is is not has not been vocal about uh, highlighting the concerns involved in face recognition technology and in fact has filed patents that talk about using um, face recognition in doorbells to alert police about suspicious people based on. Oh Amazon has so
1: many patents about helping the police it's you know when it comes to drone like little drones that sit on a police's shoulder and and, you know circumvent around a car to watch it. Um, another thing that this perhaps points to is that it's really hard to ask the government to regulate companies and ask companies to stop doing something if the government's doing it itself too, right? And so you know the Good government point. has massive facial recognition programs of its own, um, w- particularly with the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Patrol and uh, and the FBI and and you know the DEA uh, is in- engaged you know through through all kinds of like. You know, data sharing programs and what have you. Um, and so to ask the government to then tell companies to stop doing it is really kind of a, a difficult flex uh, and a position to, to take. And so uh, it really shows how complicated reigning in these digital privacy invasions are, you know, when, when we see um, so much synergy between, um, you know, corporate actors and government actors.
0: Yeah, and we had uh, the CEO of a face recognition company, Brian Brackeen, came on our show last year to say that, that he doesn't believe that face recognition is ready for use by law enforcement because of what already is being used by law enforcement
1: (laughs) that's the other (laughs) thing is like we're talking about putting the toothpaste back in the tube here and so it's like oh can you guys like stop using this thing that you're using and making a lot of money off of potentially or hope to make money off of in the future it's just it's it's very 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 difficult to formulate like the right target and the right arrow here and um and knowing when to strike it's just um it's hard because it's already in use and everyone's doing it so um, yeah. so it's hard to walk backwards.
0: And it does seem like without government regulation, lobbying the, the private tech companies might get you so far in the short term. but in the long run, if there's a market for, for surveillance technology from the government or the Department of Defense or NSA or, or whomever, somebody's going to fill it right It might not be Google, it might not be Amazon, but somebody's going to fill it as long as that demand is there and, the, and we know the demands there.
1: But I'm glad to see civil society groups stepping up here, and I hope that they do something that um, constituents can engage in as well soon. So, you know, good, f- good on them for writing letters.
0: All right, and that's a good segue into our next segment, actually. After a brief break, we're going to talk about an aspect of the consumer electronics show that doesn't often get talked about while the show itself is going on, which is Privacy.
1: at Luckylandslots.com. Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group, Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. One of the big themes at, at CES is that everything is smart. And this has been a theme at CES for a long time, but more and more we're seeing Google put its brain, its AI brain, or whatever they call it, <laughs> inside things, Alexa, inside everything. Um, you know, and and it's it seems to be kind of not that surprising anymore or interesting but but the ubiquity of it is notable like notable because they you know people are buying these things and putting them in their homes and and that really does of course raise trust and privacy issues will you wrote about last week uh whether or not with all these new products that are coming out that are infused with you know, AI brains and the subsequent microphones and cameras that often come with them, uh, we can trust them. And you did kind of an assessment of the the different ones out there. What what are your thoughts on, on the ubiquity here?
0: Yeah, they truly are ubiquitous and they get more so every year. Uh, in the run-up to CES 2019, Amazon disclosed that it had sold 100 million Alexa devices. And then a few days later, Google said, well, our Google Assistant is going to be on more than a billion devices. That one's kind of cheating because... Google Assistant comes built into every Android phone in the world. It's not quite the same as, as like buying an Echo or buying a Google Home. But it's safe to, safe to say that that tons of households now have these listening devices. And even, as you have just heard, some of the ads on our show are, are for products that come with these kinds of, of listening devices. So I, I wanted to look at when consumers are making these decisions, how do they decide which one to trust – and I hate to say it, but there's not a really easy answer at this point. We don't have a ton of track record for any of these products that are based primarily on listening to you and listening for the wake words at all times. Um, but, but there are some clues if you look back at the company's histories. We've seen both Google and Amazon um, have some privacy issues come up. And Amazon in particular has seemed to take a little bit of a blasé attitude. We talked last year on the show to their VP of Alexa, Al Lindsay. And asked him, you know, what do you see as the big challenges with privacy with these devices that are in people's homes that are that are always listening? Um, and he said, you know, I don't think it's that big a challenge. He didn't see privacy as a big issue. I imagine he'd have a different response today and maybe we can get him back on because we've seen things like uh, Alexa accidentally sending one person's recordings to somebody else or um, Google had their home mini devices. There was a glitch in in the early home minis where it was accidentally recording all kinds of stuff that it wasn't supposed to be recording. So uh, there are real privacy concerns with both of them already.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that Alexa guy though has a point in that a lot of people just don't care. These snafus are just kind of humorous and don't bother them. And um, and there really isn't a good sense in the U.S. of like privacy for privacy's sake being important right now. I wish there was more of one. Um, because uh, we are these things are still so relatively new. I still don't think we fully understand the harms uh, or the potential harms of having a kind of a you know a corporation listening to everything we do. Or if there are harms, then we can't really see the whites of their eyes on it. But like what what was your assessment in terms of the different companies?
0: Yeah, I mean it's certainly with with products like Gmail, where Google has all your personal messages on its server, we sort of accepted that trade-off long ago and it's kind of hard to walk that one back. But I actually do think we may be seeing more consumer concern about new classes of devices that that seem invasive in new ways. And I think privacy actually is a concern for a lot of average people that I talk to about whether they're going to bring oh, a good. Google Home or an, or an Echo into their house. Um, and we're, in fact, seeing Apple... Trying to sell its HomePod partly based on privacy. Um, it's now that's partly because Siri is not as powerful of an AI assistant as Alexa or the Google Assistant. Um, but Apple has has made privacy one of the big selling points of the HomePod, and you pay a huge premium for it. Unfortunately, it's it's way more expensive than the other two. And there's actually one privacy glitch even with the HomePod, which hopefully they'll fix, which is that it doesn't recognize the voices of different people. And so anybody in your house can walk up to it and ask it questions, and it will retrieve your data for them as if they were you. So that's a sort of different kind of privacy risk than the ones that we see on the server, on the, on the side of the servers for Amazon and Google but you asked about my takeaway. I mean, I, I think at this point it, it's it's hard to know. But I think if you're deciding between Amazon and Google, you have to decide: Do we go with the company in Google that has built its entire business on targeted advertising, and therefore <laughs> is absolutely mining our data to to build profiles of it of us, uh, but also has been thinking all this time about like how do we safeguard that information? Or do you go with the newer entrant into that realm, in Amazon, a company that has not historically built huge uh, data profiles of every one of its users for use in targeted advertising, but is starting to go down that path and has not had all of the uh, all of the thinking over the years and, and all of the uh, thought put into the various privacy downsides that could arise. I think it's honestly sort of six of one, half dozen of the other. And I think the best we can hope is that Apple eventually comes out with a privacy-focused smart speaker that works better than the HomePod and is a lot cheaper than the HomePod.
1: Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, who has been thinking about this longer is a good, good way to kind of suss out which one to get in terms of how you feel comfortable having these things in your home. And with that, a final look at CES. We'll have one more break and then a conversation with Taylor Lorenz, a staff writer at The Atlantic, about how weird social media will be in 2019. Uh, spoiler alert, pretty freaking weird. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm excited for this. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from
2: 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness.
1: Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more
0: at applecard.com. Our guest today is Taylor Lorenz, staff writer at The Atlantic, who writes about internet culture. Lorenz is one of our favorite follows among tech journalists for her chronicling of social media trends and the internet's weird future. She's deeply plugged into online youth culture. She routinely brings back fascinating, hilarious, and sometimes disturbing dispatches from that strange world. Taylor, welcome back to If Then.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So we wanted to talk about social media in 2019, and by that we mean, like, let's Let's put Facebook behind us for a second in 2018 because we talked about it so much. And we talked with you about YouTube quite a bit last year and and YouTube stars. And that almost feels like old news. It feels like that can't have been just a year ago. But what's going on in social media in 2019 that the average non-teen sitting at home might not be aware of?
2: Well, I would say YouTube is still huge. I mean, Facebook is as irrelevant as ever. I mean, I don't even, I haven't (laughs) written about Facebook in over a year. I don't even think about it, to be honest. Oh, that must be
0: so nice. Um, it's
2: so interesting. So, As a
1: cultural critic, you don't have to think about it. Us as, as, as doing these kind of political stories about the tech industry
2: are, like, forced to, <laughs> I envy you. I know. I really it's actively don't yeah. write about that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I, as my editors can tell you, I just say absolutely no. not. I also just stop paying attention to it, mm-hmm. because I think there's all this other stuff going on yeah. the internet um, that is, to me, more interesting um, and probably more indicative of kind of, like, the future. Yeah. Um, I write a lot about Instagram, um, so a lot of kind of how Instagram is evolving. I think it's actually kind of um, replaced Facebook as most people's default sort of public profile on the Internet. It has for Um, me, for my private profile, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it's the same way where like that's where you're sort of going to express your identity. That's where you're going to catalog life moments, keep up with friends. Um so it's, yeah, it's obviously, I don't know if you guys have talked about this at all, but, you know, most people who can very easily quit Facebook can't quit Instagram. Um, and it's just becoming even more powerful.
0: Yeah, I guess it's a little depressing that we're like, oh, let's forget Facebook for a minute. Let's talk about Instagram, which, of course, is also <laughs> Facebook. But you did have a fascinating story recently um, about Instagram culture. The headline was how comments became the best part of Instagram. So the idea is is that people aren't just posting on Instagram. They're actually the comments below a popular post have become a sort of like worldwide public message board where people meet and share interests and and compete to get exposure and that kind of thing. Right.
2: Yeah, it's basically like little mini forums. I mean, I think so much of my reporting is against this um, stereotype that people have about Instagram, which I think was maybe true a long time ago about Instagram. It is certainly true of some cultures on Instagram, but it's like, you know, everybody thinks of Instagram as this place for just like really curated, beautiful photos of yourself. Um, That's partially true, but Instagram is also just a thriving, big, messy social network, the same way Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, RIP, like any of these platforms are. And so, um, you know, along with that, it's not just about the images anymore. It's about um, like the the communities that that grow around them, and also like the commentary that happens um, below them in the comment section. So, yeah, um, the comment section on a lot of a lot of uh, popular Instagram posts kind of acts as a forum. People make friends. People connect. It's where you go to discover new accounts. Um, It's become a whole little thriving community, and the photos themselves are also irrelevant at some— like, they've also become kind of irrelevant in some cases.
0: I remember when society was worried about roving gangs of teenagers, like, committing crimes on the streets, and now (laughs) we have roving gangs of teenagers trying to make— Memes go viral on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You talked about this 14 year old in Pennsylvania who leads the Dum Dum Gang, a group of thousands yes. of people, mostly teens, who engage in quote comment raids of big accounts. What is going on with kids these days?
1: I mean, but this is what this is what we would see troll. It's so interesting to me because as, as someone who's just studied the the alt right and also anonymous, uh, previous to that, these are the tactics that they would do. They would gang up and and you know all comment together and troll people. I mean, this is just common trolling. And and it seems that as the internet has become more ubiquitous in the hands of you know more people, uh, there are all kinds of weird troll communities that aren't necessarily focused around hate or a uh, political ideology or starting to emerge as well
2: yeah april that's so interesting to hear you talk about that way um that's not a framework that i've thought about mostly because i sort of actively avoid those parts of the internet but you're so right i do i i I actively (laughs) go into them but this is exactly what like anonymous would do in uh in second life for instance. I think right, I think it's about the bonding that you get and this sort of like collective experience. Like, I mean, look, the Dum, Dum gang by the way, just to be clear, is not like promoting anything. Sure, they're, Yeah, they're, it's it just they tactics. go and comment like <laughs> yeah, the 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 whole goal of it is to go comment the Easter Island head emoji and try to get to be the top comment on like whatever, like Barack Obama's Instagram post. So it's not anything nefarious, but it is like yeah, it's I think it's that like bonding over a shared mission um the, the shared mission in this case is just to like get to the top comment not like harass someone but it is it is like that similar behavior i guess for
1: yeah sure. but that we can all come together and do something and what's really interesting to me is how you know anodyne what they're doing is right and so like uh that the story that you wrote about the egg that's going viral um like you know, I think part of the appeal to that was it's it's nothingness, right? And that's why everybody could get behind it, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I wrote a thing um about that kind of like genre of accounts um a couple months ago. It's sort of like a lot of kids do this thing where they just it's it's almost like a little bit nihilistic. It's like a play for engagement. Um, but it's also to meet other people. It's a prank. Oh, it's like you play post- like social too. Yeah, it's like you post like a stock photo, and some people do it every day. Some people just do it once. It's like, hey, if, you know, can we get ten thousand people to like this or whatever? It's kind of just like. It's a challenge. It's like why people love these like viral challenges, like that kid that had to get, I guess, as many retweets as possible to get the chicken nuggets. Um, oh, oh, You know, I think that was like last year. Oh, but, right, um, right. It's remember? Like, yeah. yeah, I totally remember. And I think then it everyone became was, like, the help most... him out, you know? Yes. <laughs> and for a while, it was like, I think the most retweeted tweet of all time. I think people yeah. on the internet are so desperate for these like wholesome challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's like why people love it so much. It's an escape, kind of.
0: And the egg, I don't know if we explained, but, but it was just an Instagram post that was just a picture of an egg. It's like a pretty good picture of an egg, I would say. But it was just a picture of an egg. <laughs> it and it It is a high-quality most... egg
1: photo to, to give props <laughs> to the people who are
2: liking it, yeah.
0: <laughs> but it became the most liked post in Instagram history, and that's why we're talking about the egg, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, this person had started one of these challenge accounts and these these like challenge slash world record accounts are like very, very, very common. There's hundreds of thousands of them. You'll see them below any celebrity post um, commenting like, please follow me. Like, can we get this tomato to get the most amount of comments or whatever, whatever? Um, This one just I think like the trend had been around long enough. And for whatever reason, this one kind of like was shared by the right group of people where it ended up um, going viral, and it was sort of the same thing with the retweet challenges. It's just like everybody wanting to f- collectively feel like they're part of something great on the internet.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of of Bodie McBoatface, right? When they let the internet yes, vote on, the the, on what to yeah. name a new research vessel in the UK.
2: Yeah, it's like a viral challenge, and then when you achieve it, you feel like you did something big.
1: I just, I'm fascinated by the lowest common denominator of it. How we're like the the dumbest stuff is like obviously the most popular. <laughs> Um, which is fine. It's fun. I don't know if it's dumb, it's just like not dumb, that's the wrong word, but like the 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 most kind of vacant um challenges. Um but you know, speaking of other things that are fun, um there are other social networks besides the, the big dogs here in the US, including TikTok, which you've been writing about a little bit. Can you tell us what TikTok yeah. is for people who don't follow this closely?
2: Sure. So TikTok is um, is a short form video app. It used to be called Musically. So if you're familiar with that, um, it was sort of Musically was more known for lip syncing, um, but it's basically this this app where you can go create short videos set to music or sound. Um, it's kind of similar to Instagram in some ways, where there is a kind of a feed, there's a hashtags, um, you know, there's user profiles that you can follow. You can end up getting millions of followers and become an influencer there. Um, but it's TikTok has only been around f- since last August. Um, so basically, the, the parent company um, had had rebranded TikTok was a big app. Internationally, um, and Musically was sort of the American version of that, um, but Musically was frou- floundering, and so um, the parents. Musically had a like,
0: big scandal, right?
2: M- Musically was known for having extremely young children users, basically. Right, and pedophilia so, was a was a concern. Exactly, yeah. There was all of this, um, just sort of drama around that. They ended up getting a lot of bad press, um, and TikTok, meanwhile, had sort of grown to this powerhouse internationally. Um, first of all, it operates in China under the name Doyin might be pronouncing that wrong. Um, but uh, in and, it, and, and in India, Pakistan, all over the world, um, Southeast Asia, it's huge, and South America. And um, so it had sort of been scaling. And so ByteDance, which owns this big conglomerate, was like, look, let's just shut down musically and we'll roll out TikTok to the US. Um, and it's been so far a huge hit. I mean, they've put a massive amount of marketing behind it. It's, yeah, but the stuff there is hyper viral, and um, a lot of memes basically kind of um, incubate there now.
0: It does seem like the spirit of it is fun, partly because it's apolitical, right? It's like sort of it's probably not totally politics free, but Facebook has become so associated with fake news and partisan politics. And TikTok is just like people doing funny dances to songs and and riffing on each other's work and mashups and remixes.
2: Yes, it's not. Facebook. I don't even know what's on Facebook anymore. It's like weird, <laughs> awful stuff. Um, it's so weird, like and awful. It, you could. I think that actually, the the closer. Um, I think Instagram is a much closer kind of like network to what TikTok is, and a lot of the ways that people use TikTok in China is actually like it's almost like a default Instagram. They don't have Instagram. Um, so it's people posting these like short form videos. I guess I would say Instagram stories um, set to audio. There is a lot of bad stuff on TikTok. Um, there's trolls everywhere there I mean there 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 is a lot of like very cruel very problematic content on tiktok I posted um, a thread recently of like people mimicking a school shooting Um, you know people saying the holocaust isn't real like there are trolls on every big open social network tiktok just it's it's a very curated experience so when you go on like you get a feed that's highly curated Um, the hashtags are all pretty curated Um, and it's it's, you just have to dig a little bit deeper to find that like awful Content. But it is so it is very positive usually. If you, I mean, if you sign on, you're most likely just going to see positive.
0: Speaking of which, can you explain why someone might hear uh, out in public in the United States somebody yell, what is it, hit or miss? Yeah,
2: sure. So, um, well, I, yeah, I guess it's basically this like clip of a song um, that. Yeah, it's the song that went viral on TikTok. People recreated a lot of videos of it. The callback in the song is like hit or miss, and then it's like I guess you never miss, y'all. People just like <laughs> have started calling that out in stores and to see as who else,
0: to see like who's a fellow TikTok user. Yeah, it's right? like
2: who basically like what other teenagers are around us.
0: So, me and my friend Sam are inside uh, Marshalls right now, and we're gonna see if it's any other fellow Tiktokers here hit or miss. Okay,
2: that answers that. It's like Marco Polo, but, like, for finding other teens. So, you know, something that I'm just seeing kind of
1: linking uh, the, the viral that's put a stock photo up and get everyone to like it thing and... And you know these TikTok fun videos. Uh, is that uh, this this is about having fun? This isn't about politics. Uh, and you know the stuff that were that you you've been writing about in terms of that's gaining popularity or going viral um, seems to be people using social media not necessarily to spread political messages. Is that a general trend that you're seeing is that people are are wanting to kind of use social media to to, to look away from the um, the kind of political turmoil that uh, that is kind of constantly berating us in the news? Uh,
2: Probably. I mean, it's hard to say, of course. but Right. I know. Right. Like, I mean, here's the thing. This Internet is a different internet than, like, whatever all that other stuff is happening in. I mean, the thing is, this internet is dominated by, like, very young teenagers. So they're not, I mean, some of them are hyper political, have like a lot of opinions on weird issues. Um, Not weird issues, but some of them have really problematic insane opinions because they're teenagers and who knows why. But, um, but yeah, like it's more about gaming the internet itself. And it's more about connecting and building communities actually not really based on politics. Like you're right. I, I don't know how much of that is based off like escapism versus the fact that they just honestly are young teenagers and it's not as relevant to their world yet. Um, mm. Some, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. It's like weird though because so many, a lot. I mean, a lot of young boys, especially, are really engaged in like Instagram meme culture, and that is a very right wing culture. I mean, like Ben Shapiro is like a meme god in that like world. I yeah. mean, I was with this fifteen year old over Thanksgiving who just had his whole Instagram feed was Ben Shapiro memes like. Um, This is the Steve Bannon strategy. Yeah, this is what they they, they talk about. Mm -hmm. So I hate to say that it's like apolitical, but it's these viral challenges and these other things are are overtly not political and they are an escape. Um, And it's just a different corner of the Internet, I think. But... Yeah. I mean, it will be interesting to see also as these kids kind of grow up, like how that shifts. I think that these platforms will only become more politicized. I mean, Instagram oh, is yeah. already getting that Absolutely. way. And, you know, a TikTok is like, who knows? They're doing a pretty good job of moderation. But like these trolls are really insidious and I don't like doubt their ability to ruin Uh, every social network
1: if there's attention and there's a microphone then someone's going to grab the microphone for sure um finally i wanted to Mm. end uh with before when we spoke to you last year we talked about some youtube stars um you know mainly i think jake paul uh if, yeah. yeah what's going on with them now um are R. they R. S- P. really is that over yeah. is that, like, oh my god he's not dead or anything
0: i, I know yeah, he's not um, dead but like is he like oh, yeah. is he still, he's died like, so many times in the past
1: <laughs> i know is he still like have his legions of like adoring fans following him around yeah. it was just such a weird scene
2: yeah. So I know I said RIP as a joke recently. I and I think the person that um, I said it to didn't didn't get that. And I was like, oh, God. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so Logan Paul, yeah. i oh, sorry. Jake <laughs> Paul is
0: still alive. Logan Paul also <laughs> still alive.
2: Yeah, so a couple things. Like, let me give you guys the full rundown. Um, so, I actually wrote a post in December about how Jake Paul's career is over. Essentially, um, oh, I Jake went to Paul, not his Logan Paul, sorry, or Jake they both? Paul. I made that okay. mistake
0: last year, April. I'm glad oh, you I'm made sorry. it this year.
2: Okay, whatever they have Jake. <laughs> so they both got into huge amounts of controversy okay. constantly. Um, Jake Paul had this tour that really fell apart, and his Team Ten incubator kind of collapsed. He's really struggling with what to do. Um, Logan Paul. Was in the news last year for the suicide forest thing. Most recently in the news for making homophobic jokes on his podcast um, and joking that he was going to go gay for the month of March and just joking about gay people in general. And so he's also had to, you know, suffered the whole it's the whole backlash cycle once again. Barely a year later, he just does not learn his lessons. Um, Both of them are are becoming irrelevant in the sense that. you know, these teen stars don't have a long shelf life and they have to really manage themselves well. Um Logan and Jake Jake is a little bit better than Logan at at doing that, but both of them are just they're not really in line with the modern like culture of YouTube and where it's going, I guess. Like they're both entitled bratty kids, but they're not like interesting enough um or creative enough to drive a long audience um they're just kind of getting stale their jokes are stale their pranks are stale and kids are losing interest they're getting old to be honest they're both in their 20s at this point um and so for young teenagers they kind of moved on to other stuff
0: all right i love it uh jake paul and logan paul are out tiktok and instagram comments are in taylor lorenz thank you again it was great having you on the show
2: thanks for having me i really appreciate it all right one more quick break
1: and then don't close my tab some of our favorite things we've seen online this week Okay, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what tabs do you have open on your browser that you wanted to share with
0: us? All right, my tab comes from Aaron Griffith at The New York Times, and the headline is More Startups Have an Unfamiliar Message for Venture Capitalists Get Lost. And it's about how uh, startup founders these days, you know, it used to be the holy grail was that you raised a bunch of money from venture capital and then you would get really big and grow really fast and everybody would get paid and become millionaires or if you're really lucky, you become a billionaire. But the reality is that in many cases, the uh, pressure to grow from from the venture capitalists would force you to basically like grow, growth hack your company into the ground. You would sort of, by so aggressively pursuing growth, you would compromise what was worthwhile about your business in the first place. Um, and then you would end up with, uh, with nothing at the end. Um, and so uh, the story is about how, these days, there are now support groups, there are uh, meetups for startups that are looking for different ways to raise money to do it in a more sustainable way. Um, I just thought it was an interesting look. I mean, we don't hear as much about the startup scene these days, or at least I don't, as, as we did a few years back. And that's partly because the, the huge tech companies have, have sucked up a lot of yeah. the a lot of the air for the categories that we're used to seeing VC fund, right? Like social media, it's hard to get very far in social media these days with with. The Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp behemoth, um, behemoth. I never know how to pronounce that word. Um, now, VCs are, are pumping money into things like electric scooters, um, vaping, and and Juul. Um, But anyway, I just found it an interesting perspective that there are there is like a, a wiser group or a wiser cohort of startup founders these days that are realizing that that becoming the next Facebook is probably not going to happen, and maybe they should maybe that shouldn't be their goal to start out with.
1: Yeah, you know, I definitely know some people that um, have kind of startups that they're working and they're not trying to get venture funding at all. They would rather get, um, you know, a, a investor that they trust, right, or that they know uh, is kind of going to be with them for the long haul and, and not necessarily trying to get these big pools of cash from, you know disparate venture capitalists so it's 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 something i've noticed kind of on the fly more uh super interesting to keep watch of because it kind of shifts how power works i mean you know if if we with the one of the big questions around uber was that if his if the funders around uber uh pushed for more responsibility from kalanick would the company have acted better right and so uh super interesting to to watch this space uh, for my tab this week, it's um, some somber news uh, from here in the Bay Area. Uh, the East Bay Express, which was the alternative weekly that uh, that operated throughout the East Bay, a hugely populated area that is seeing a massive amount of money from the technology industry being poured in and people from the technology industry coming into it, which is you know, taking the form of all kinds of, you know, shady developers uh, and unaffordable housing and what have you, um, lost its uh, alt-weekly. The East Bay Express is is uh, fired all of its editorial staff on, or laid off, rather, on Friday. Um, and that's going to leave a massive hole uh, in the reporting that is done um, in this, you know, very important part of the country. Uh, the East Bay Express, uh, you know, covered stories like Oakland Police Department, um, you know, engaged in uh, trafficking of uh, underage sex workers and, 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 you know, engaged also in... in all kinds of terrible, corrupt activity that was brought to light because of the really dogged and impressive reporting of the journalists there, um, following developers that were coming in with kind of um, deals that uh, were underhanded and, and pushing affordable housing out. They covered the arts and, and really created a space for people to continue to have uh, to celebrate their their work and self-expression in an environment when um when it's increasingly hard to do so because of the massive amounts of evictions and the money that's coming in, that's making it harder and harder to have spaces to congregate and have community around the arts. Uh, One of my favorite stories was one about uh, the increasing use of uh, police officers um, and prosecutors uh, taking East Bay uh, rap artists' lyrics and using it against them in court, uh, using their creative expression against them in court. So a really jarring example of how not everybody even gets free speech in the same way um, that was reported on in the East Bay Express. So great award-winning reporting there. All around. And that is no longer going to be uh, something that Oakland has unless someone swoops in and buys it. And I can't stress enough, like this is something that could be bought like for two million dollars or a million. and Like it's something that like is the cost of like a one or two bedroom apartment in the Mission in San Francisco. You know, like uh, this is just a an- another example of just kind of the economic disparities here. Um, and without this journalism, I don't know what's going to happen. I am really worried about, um, particularly developers coming in and, and and pushing out people who have lived here for a long time from their homes.
0: So yeah, and it is sad. And when it comes to national media trends, the Bay Area is often in the vanguard because. You know, of course, that's where the tech industry is centered. And so the, the the hits to the newspaper industry and the alt-weeklies happened there before they spread to the rest of the country. When you talk about the East Bay Express, I mean, Oakland lost its local newspaper, the Oakland Tribune, which has now been folded into the East Bay Times, which is part of a bigger conglomerate. So there's just a big hole in local coverage in the East Bay without the Express. Um, and, and, of course, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, a storied alt-weekly in San Francisco, closed up shop a few years ago. So, uh, you know, the tech companies, they they are starting to funnel some money into local journalism. Facebook announced just this week that it will be Putting aside three hundred million dollars for news programs, um, but you know a lot of this is—it's going to nonprofits, it's going to startup accelerators, it's going to various ventures that are obviously worthy and hopefully finding a way forward. But at the same time, it's not doing anything to save what's left of of the dwindling um, newspaper industry or alt weekly industry.
1: I don't know. I mean, without pol- without police accountability, I don't know, like if the city can if a city can really function well you know, or who it will function for. Um, And so I I wish that this was considered um, as as, uh, important um, as the amount of money that I see thrown into all these kinds of uh, unfounded or untested startup ideas. I also want to add that Maximum Rock and Roll, which is the longest-running punk fanzine in the country, also based out of the East Bay, it's been running um, since 1977. Actually, started as a radio show on KPFA, a radio station out right here. Went into print uh, a few years after that in 1982. Is no longer going to be running its print magazine. Uh, that was announced uh, this weekend as well. And uh it's something that really hit me because, you know, before we all felt the need to talk to each other all day, every single day. Uh and, and you know, this was something You that mean we, virtually, right? Virtually, talk to each other yeah. Online. Before yeah. We, we all were kind of conditioned to do that, um, Maximum Rock and Roll built a community around people that decided that they were not going to use corporate outlets of communication and that that, like a really around the punk community and it brought all of these kind of intentionally local and disparate scenes together to make it feel like there was because there was a national international really it was an international you know fanzine movement Um, and uh, I remember having some of my projects written about in Maximum Rock and Roll when I was younger and It was really uh, made me feel so seen. Um, And uh, and I know it did that for thousands and thousands and thousands of other people for decades and uh, not having the print uh, version anymore. You know, things change. It's okay, But uh, but certainly um, something that kind of made me uh, also cry out because uh, it it definitely served a a role in in my cultural kind of formation. Okay, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to everyone who heard me ramble about the Bay Area news. Um, uh, you can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at ifthenpod.
0: You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi to us.
1: You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Orimis.
0: Thanks again to our guest, Taylor Lorenz. I think she was our first repeat guest on the show. She's she's great. You can follow her at Taylor Lorenz. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-L-O-R-E-N-Z.
1: And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We do appreciate you doing so.
0: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs.
1: Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in rainy Berkeley, California.
0: And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next
1: week. Bye.